Well, I think the biggest part is we've been able to we've been able to scale. When COVID started, we were only in the moving industry and we were able to add on the property insurance industry after that. And I'm still just one person with the same 24 hours in a day that everyone else gets. Welcome to Gaining the Technology Leadership Edge, a podcast exploring the latest trends, strategies, and insights in technology leadership. We'll discuss the most important topics and ideas shaping the industry today from emerging technologies to digital transformation and beyond. Join us to learn all the juicy secrets of tech leaders, their biggest successes and failures on our quest for gaining that all-important technology edge. So are you ready? Let's get started. Our guest today is Zach Ratner. Zach, the Chief Technology Officer and Co-Founder at Yembo, is a software engineer with over 15 years of experience. He has a BS in Computer Engineering from Virginia Tech. Zach's projects includes scaling a flashcard studying tool to over 3 million users and serving as a software lead for Qualcomm's internal innovation program, Qualcomm IMPAQT. He is in the top 2% of contributors on Stack Overflow and has 18 granted U.S. patents with several more pending. Grow Up Fast is his first book. He has three children and lives in California with his wife, Lindsay. Welcome to the show, Zach. Thanks for having me, Mike. Happy to be here. That's some, some interesting. You have an interesting background. So um, let's start out. Let's talk about um, let's talk about Yembo. Tell us what what Yembo does. Sure, Yembo is a computer vision technology company, and we provide software that allows home services like movers and insurance companies to perform visual estimates to get their jobs done. So traditionally, this is a very labor-intensive, complicated process. If you imagine if you're moving, walking around someone's home, identifying everything that they have. So we've custom-built AI technology from the ground up to streamline that process and work more efficiently for both the movers and the insureds and the uh, customers who are getting the moving services. Cool. So, so what are some of the biggest challenges you've faced in getting this company off the ground? <laughs> Many. So we uh, we turned seven years old this year, so I, I could go on for days. Um, but I think to put it into perspective, we built technology the moment it became available. Like we were reading papers that were coming out of academia. And basically, the day it became possible, um, it became something that we pounced on. So when we shipped our first version of the product, a lot of things were immature. We didn't really know how well it performed because everything was so new. The industry we were selling into was relatively inexperienced because, it was, again, everything was so new. And we had to figure out a lot of things kind of from scratch and iterating. Um, so we learned to kind of not be um, too attached to any one idea because we needed to iterate a lot. Um, I can give a pretty simple example is um, when you sell technology to a home service company, usually the person who's making the purchasing decision is not the actual day-to-day -day user. You may sell to the owner, or the chief operating officer, or the head of sales, but it's the move coordinators, it's the uh, property adjusters, it's the people that uh, actually do the work that are gonna be most impacted by it. And that's why we found we had to spend a lot of time making sure that the technology really worked for those folks. Um, people hear the word AI, and I think the news doesn't help, Terminator doesn't help, uh, 2001 a Space Odyssey didn't help. People think scary thoughts. Um, they think about AI taking things away. Um, but what we saw is AI makes things faster and easier, but it doesn't replace the person. Um, if you were to look at this 
shelf of books behind me, the customer um, in a traditional move survey would be asked, like, how many boxes is it going to take to pack? And they'd look around and they'd say a number. Um, the AI can do a pretty good job telling you how many boxes you need for that. It cannot build rapport. It cannot um, do these things that are innately human. So what we had to spend a lot of time figuring out is how do we um, properly explain and build the technology in a way that makes the person able to be more efficient, be able to have a better customer experience, able to provide a value and a service that would have been impossible otherwise. Traditional move surveys will just be like a number, maybe an Excel spreadsheet. We actually give you like a picture of each item moving and saying, uh, for this reason, the price will be X. Uh, there aren't just enough hours in a day to do that if you tried to go manually and like color code every single item in somebody's home. Um, but I think getting over that initial perception hurdle that this is not something that's going to make your life worse, it's actually going to make it a lot better. And um, all the way down to the user interface that we built has a lot of rounded corners, cool colors, um, things that make it look friendly, you know, like inviting animations and icons. Because um, we're really trying to give the impression that this is uh, something that will streamline your workflow and make it better as opposed to something that will um, render all humans obsolete or some scary future like that. <laughs> yeah, I hear that all the I actually have a, a fairly close associate who um, is on the, you know, AI is going to take over the world and eliminate humans uh, bandwagon. So like um, in, in the case of, you know, you, you're dealing with home services uh, companies, um, do you run into any challenges with the fact that, you know, you're presenting them with, a, with an AI based tool? Yeah, I think the, the perception challenge is kind of the first one that we spoke about. Um, and then once you get over that hurdle, the, um, there's the Gartner style hype cycle of the uh, inflated expectations where once you get over that hurdle, um, it's not magic. It's math and science at the end of the day. These are uh, better algorithms, but they're still um, based on science and reality. We had a mover who um, was trying to survey a job after the person had already um, moved out. So there was some there were some items left behind. It was after dark and they actually had the power cut already. So all the videos that we got were just like black because it's nighttime and the power is cut. And um, we got an email saying, hey, why did the AI detect nothing? And we had to explain like, hey, it's uh, it'll identify what's there. But if the information is not in the video, it can't like hallucinate and make stuff up. Um, <laughs> so like trying to figure out what are good problems for AI to solve and what are not good problems for AI to solve. AI has gotten a lot better. It's growing up super fast, but it's not uh, it's not a magician. And I think if you play around with tools that use AI today, it, you still run into these kinds of things. Um, if you play around with ChatGPT is kind of the one that we're, everyone seems to be talking about now. It makes mistakes. It hallucinates things that aren't actually true. It's very confident. It can be kind of hard to tell what's, what's real and what's fake. Um, and that's why I feel like it's helpful to go like a layer deeper and learn enough about how the technology works to understand what its trade-offs are. And um, with large language models like ChatGPT, when you just train it on huge swaths of data, um, it's going to be kind of hard to attribute back to any one um, data source. So that's what makes it, it's like a the thing that makes it good at what it does also has some downsides. And I feel like trying to figure that out enough to know which use cases are worth going after and which ones aren't um, is kind of like a key differentiator in how you can apply these new technologies into your day-to-day -day workflows. 
Yeah, I, I, it's definitely a mindset thing, right? I mean, um, I, I, I just read something recently about some attorney somewhere that used ChatGPT to write a brief, and it like literally made up cases that didn't exist. Um, and he, he of course, thought that it was perfect, and so mm -hmm. uh, completely missed it and made him look <laughs> stupid. Um, I, I personally find like for years, for about a year now, we've used um, Jasper to like mm -hmm. write draft blog posts. And one of the things that my blog editors have had to learn is to fact check what it says, because um, it isn't always correct. <laughs> exactly. Um, and it, and it, I mean, and it itself will tell you, like, try asking it for something from 2020 or 2019. It does. It'll tell you it doesn't have data back that far. So it can't mm -hmm. tell you. So uh, that's that's an interesting point. Like there's limitations to um, AI and you have to be aware of what those are. Um, tell me, you know, we'd been talking, you know, prior to to hitting record. Tell me about your struggles with um, having to, you know, being forced to go remote. Sure. So like most companies, I feel like before 2020, we we're San Diego based, um, didn't have a remote work policy. We're about nine employees. Then COVID hit. Um, it seems kind of silly in hindsight, but we we ran this office wide poll around um, how long do you think it'll be before we're all back in the office again? I think the longest out vote was three weeks. So we all kind of completely uh, underestimated how severe it was going to be. Um, and then the world's um, adopted technology out of necessity. So we had clients that were on like a demo or a trial and they accelerated their plans and said, okay, we need to go all in on Yumbo now because remote inspection um, prevents the need for someone needing to go into the house. So business got way busier than usual. Um, we were hiring a lot. We um, raised an investment round. So we went into COVID um, with, I think, 11 or 12 employees and then came out um, I guess if you count coming out as 2022 or so, we had around uh, around 70. So company had significantly changed and we didn't really like have a ton of time to plan ahead because we had underestimated how severe it was going to be. And there's this concept that we talk about that um, in, in the book that you mentioned in my intro and in Grow Up Fast, we talk about the time warp. And that is how do you use time zones to your advantage? Because I feel like they get a bad rap is... um people will complain around, oh, uh, I'm on the West Coast and all these East Coasters, they message me really early. And there are certain uh, challenges that come with time zones, but I feel like learning to leverage them so that you can make 24-hour progress in a day without burning any one person out was really key. So one of the things that we learned was we found as a software company, we need to design new features, we need to implement them, we need to integrate and test them. And then once they launch, we need to like monitor them and make sure that things um, are running well. So what we did was we actually broke down that process into three different buckets. And we put one bucket in the US um, for the initial system architecture, for talking to clients, because that's where most of the clients were based, for doing the initial development. We had a team in Ukraine that was doing front-end development. So we'd scope it out. And then when your day's ending, you could pass it off and someone else would take over the implementation details. And then we had a team in India that was doing that testing and monitoring and all those kinds of things. So if you look at like a globe and you kind of turn it as the earth rotates, you kind of start out in your morning in the US designing, then you hand it off to Ukraine where you're building, and then you hand it off to India where it's getting integration tested. 
And that workflow that we put together is actually still in use now, about uh, was that three, four years later now. And I feel like we, I wish we had like masterminded some amazing top-down strategy to come up with it because it's so cool and so powerful. But we sort of just kind of like um, gradually iterated our way towards that, iterated our way towards that bit. Um, so I feel like learning to use it to your advantage can make it super powerful where you can go to bed at the end of the day, wake up in the morning and like meaningful progress has been made on the things that you're working on. It didn't come for free. We had to kind of like dissect what we were working on and find out ways to communicate clearly so that people can get work done when you're sleeping. Because if they just have a bunch of questions, then um, someone's got to stay up till two in the morning and answer them. But um, by kind of dissecting that workflow, putting it together, we're able to just move way faster than uh, if we had stayed 100% San Diego based in perpetuity. So, okay. So, so company has grown quite a bit through, through that time. What are some challenges with staff management that you've run into? I think the biggest one is communication has gotten a lot harder when you're five people in a shared office space. Um, you swivel your chair around, you say something and the whole company is heard. You just had an all hands meeting. Congratulations. Um, when you're remote, um, you have to be more mindful around, um, who do I include in this meeting? um time zones because like it may be 9 a.m for me but somebody else is asleep so it's not impossible but i would say you can't ignore it and just get it for free so thinking through these kinds of things is is kind of important i think if we had tried to divvy up our workflow any other way it may not have worked um, i think the reason that we're able to hand things off to time zones where there's like no overlap in working hours only really works because the nature of the work that we're handing off is able to be like packaged up that way I can give you the code, I can tell you what it's supposed to do, and you as the QA person can figure out how to test it. You don't really need to get on a call with me and explain. But if we're trying to digest client feedback and like decide what the product needs to do because of this feedback I'm hearing, that's a lot harder to do if, you are, um, if you're not able to have a face-to-face -face conversation. So by like divvying up the work and um, not trying to have um, workflows that require like involved intense back and forth conversations when you're on opposite sides of the planet i feel like is is kind of key and um also just being open to to iterate is i make a ton of mistakes i make a lot of policies and we say hey this is a draft we're going to try it for two weeks see how it goes and then like solicit feedback um i think having a low ego when you go into these things that you haven't done before is pretty key because then everyone's sort of incentivized to be harsh on the problem and speak freely if something's not working well. And if you just act like you have everything put together and uh, you're not open to feedback, you kind of miss out on iterations and tweaks that other people may have visibility into that you don't. So I usually try to set pretty low expectations of like, hey, here's the goal that we want to get. We want to stand up this team in India to help out with QA. Um, but we're not going to be experts on day one. There will be issues. Um, I'll take the first couple calls where we have to go over in the middle of the night and figure out what's going on. But like every time I tweak something, I'll share what I learned, we'll update our processes, and we'll we'll decide if this is worth doing after a couple of weeks. So I feel like having that low ego and being willing to hear feedback and like ask people, hey, what's not working? Um, and get an honest answer. That part has been has been pretty helpful. It's a pretty well-oiled machine now, but it's like sort of easy to forget that it didn't come for free. Yeah, well, that iterative approach um to me is almost essential. Like I have a program I teach my um, coaching uh, students 
called the decentralized a team method and mm -hmm. i came up with it when i was a cto in an iterative fashion because i knew that i had to you know i was missing events with my children my wife was complaining that i was working too much and you know i had to do something i mean i was working over 100 hours a week and mm -hmm. i had to stop that it was not going to be sustainable um but you can't just do it you know you can't just snap your fingers and do it um you have to come up with ways to make sure that the things that you maybe not going to have the time to do someone else will. And so that's, that changes your process flows. And so you have to, you know, if normally I'm the one approving something and I'm going to have someone else approve it, I have to change that process. So everyone knows. Um, and sometimes it works and sometimes right. it doesn't work. Uh, and you have to just keep, be willing to keep going back to the well and fixing it a little bit more, a little bit more. And then eventually you get something that works and then you stick with that and move on to the next issue. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I, lo I love that you mentioned um, what's working and what's not working. Um, how how have you used that to your benefit for creating these um, these processes um, as you're you know going through your iterative process? Well, I think the biggest part is we've been able to we've been able to scale. When COVID started, we were only in the moving industry, and we were able to add on the property insurance industry after that. And I'm still just one person with the same 24 hours in a day that everyone else gets. And I think by being able to kind of cordon off certain workflows that are important, um, but they're not things that I, if I, if I were to keep them myself, then I wouldn't have been able to do some other things. So things like digesting client feedback, things like um, putting together, make sure you have good testing in place, making sure that um, the uh, you're monitoring things so if customers are getting confused, that you have like a workflow to digest that feedback, iterate on it. Um, you're measuring the right metrics. These are all important things. You can't ignore them and have a successful business, but they all just kind of pile up. And I don't think I would have been able to take the time and energy that it takes to start a new product in a new vertical and stand it up alongside this existing workflow if we hadn't figured out how to um, delegate. And it can also be great learning opportunities and growth opportunities for folks on the team is uh, the people that started as individual contributors working in this workflow um, it's kind of a natural career progression to start owning certain aspects of it, letting them like, Hey, you started doing QA in this one area. What if you ran the QA team next? Um, those kinds of people generally know the details that it takes to do a good job there. And, um, I like that's, that's been sort of essential because you mentioned, I don't also appreciate working hundred plus hours a week. Sometimes you have to, but it's not something that I ever like go home proud of usually come out of it exhausted. And, um, I also feel like I'm not particularly great at everything. If you look at like the work that you've done in your 90th hour in a week, it's not A plus work all the time. Um, so if something is really important, why would you have like the most exhausted, depleted version of yourself working on it? I would say it's it can be hard to delegate, but that's what you're practically doing if you don't, is you're saying it's okay to have one hour a week of my time when I'm running on fumes and it, that's generally not good enough to, to really bring the company to the next level. So having like a slice of humble pie and saying, you know what, I'm actually doing this process a disservice by owning it. I need to hand it off to somebody else. It's kind of a, a mindset shift, but acknowledging that I'm a finite human being and don't have infinite capacity and that other people can do better jobs than I can. It's like tough to stomach, but uh, once you, once you get over that, I feel like you're, kind of opened up to to do bigger and better things. So so how has taking letting your staff take ownership over some of these processes, how has it helped prepare them, say, for future roles within the company? 
I think there's been a few cool things that's, that have happened. Um, and that is, I am no longer the main expert in the room. And when, when we started the company, it was like, I was the first and only software engineer was doing front end, back end testing. Everything was me. Um, but now I'll go to a meeting and I'm learning from other people. And I feel like that is a huge step in someone's career development is like step one is kind of learn how the company works, learn what the workflows are, be a good practitioner of those things. But in terms of like ownership and growth, the next step is figuring out um, what do we want to do next? Like I always joke that uh, knowing how to do something is relatively easy as an engineer because that's what we spend our whole careers like studying and discipline studying, knowing what to do much tougher. Um, like deciding what direction to go in. And I feel like by allowing people to update the processes that you give them, there's um, there's some freedom in it. There's ownership in that and say, hey, there was a particular reason at a particular time where we said we we're going to do it this way, but the situation may change. And if you want to change something, I'm here to help you. I can like role play with you. I can bounce ideas off of you, but like you're free to tweak stuff if you need to. And that's been really kind of cool because we have multiple products that we're working on now and um, we have multiple managers working on each one and we all get to like bounce different ideas off of each other and when you look at the end result that you come up with it used to be 100% my ideas now I feel like it's 10-15% me um, where I'm still involved I'm still signing off on major decisions but it's not like um, I think we're we're building things that are legitimately better than any one person because you can kind of talk about it with a wider group you can um, maybe have one person try it in a relatively low stakes environment, see if something works well, and then apply it elsewhere. Um, I feel like that's been that's been pretty cool. Where in the software engineering world, I I'm I feel very fortunate where you can roll things back, you can deploy it just for one person. Like Apple can't make an iPhone and ship it to ten percent of their clients, see how it goes, and then like uh, make another version of an iPhone based on how that goes. But in software, you can totally do that. So I feel like these kinds of workflows. Um, you can kind of take advantage of some of the inherent properties of the industry that you're in. And um, if you want to deploy something for one client, see how it goes, measure, and then decide what you do from there. It's like totally feasible. How, how has your approach affected staff retention? I think overall it's been, it's been relatively good. If you look at um, general startup data, it's usually at the, I think the three year of tenure mark is usually when, um, more than 50% of that cohort has dropped off and moved to another company, either voluntarily or not. Um, and with Yembo, we have folks that have been here, their fourth, fifth anniversary is coming up. So I feel like the further you get from that three-year mark, then you become the anomaly, right? Because you, you drop below 50% are still around. Um, but I think the key is if you look at what those people who have been at the company three, four, five years are doing, they actually did change jobs. They just stayed in Yembo and changed it. So somebody joins in one particular role. As they grow, they get something else. So we try to um, we try to have a company where people can do their careers best work. And when everything's growing and expanding, and you have too much work to do, you can sort of afford to say, "Hey, where do you want to go next in your career?" There's these like three things that are coming up. Um, I'm gonna probably have to hire for two of them, but the one that you're most interested in, I can kind of slot you in, and then the other two will go higher around. So there's a certain amount of flexibility that I just feel like is harder to get at a more regimented or a bigger company. And I feel like that's certainly helped because you can try things out beforehand. 
So it's not like a big deal. If you're like an engineer looking to take on more product responsibilities, you don't have to like interview for a new job. We can just try it out for a couple of months, see how it goes and then say, hey, you know what? That wasn't for me or I really like this. I'd like to focus more on it. So you can kind of de-risk these big changes. And then from like a hiring standpoint, you don't have to retrain that person. They already know the product, they know the team, they know the company. So there's a lot of um, benefit that the employer gets as well. Um, so I've seen that kind of work out on on both sides where the employee gets a, a cool opportunity that would be rather difficult to come by otherwise. And the employer gets somebody who's basically able to onboard way faster because they already know all these basic things that someone, if you were to hire externally, wouldn't. Cool. Well, we're starting to run out of time, but I'd like to find out a little bit more about your book, um, Grow Up Fast. So maybe you could give me like a, you know, high level synopsis of what, what your book covers. Sure. So I've had this idea for a couple of years. Um, Yumbo turned seven years old this year. So I've been working in the AI space for a while. So the book is called Grow Up Fast, Lessons from an AI Startup. And the basic idea I mentioned we we went remote was I wanted to encapsulate the biggest learnings that I had found throughout the time working at an AI company. So finding your first customers, um, tackling an audacious technical project and iterating your way to making it work, managing teams, dealing with time zones. Um, basically all of the main lessons that I've learned from starting this company, I tried to like encapsulate my thoughts, write it down and share it in a format that's really easy to read. Um, and uh, I've been hearing some some super awesome feedback from folks where people try a, certain lessons and I get like wake up to an email from somebody who tried something out in the book and they said, hey, I wouldn't have thought to do that. And I tried it and this piece worked out well. And it's been pretty cool. Um, I think the biggest um, myth that the book debunks is that AI is a mythical out there thing that some PhD experts can use and nobody else can kind of really touch it. Um, but I feel like just so much is changing so quickly. A lot of the industries that exist today haven't really fully digested the potential of AI, which makes a ton of opportunity for people like you and me to go figure out those workflows. When we started Yembo, the biggest use cases in AI was like self-driving cars. And we went and sold it to moving and storage industry. It was like a direction that most people didn't see coming. And I feel like that really, um, that really like unlocked a whole um, set of use cases and a whole set of clients that probably wouldn't have gotten AI for a couple more years if we hadn't come around and done it. Um, so we sort of deconstruct how we do that and we give some lessons learned and we tried to make it a pretty easy read. It's not like a computer science textbook. You don't have to have a engineering degree or a math background to read it. Um, and, uh, it's been pretty rewarding just to see how many cool things people are doing as a result of it. I got an email a couple of days ago from, well, I think the biggest part is we've been able to, we've been able to scale. When COVID started, we were only in the moving industry and we were able to add on the property insurance industry after that. And I'm still just one person with the same 24 hours in a day that everyone else gets. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. Just like how, how much is going on right now. Um, the biggest thing I was thinking, like why publish it this year was there's just so much happening is that I didn't want people to be sitting on the sidelines and let all these cool opportunities pass them by. So that was kind of the catalyst for getting this thing off the ground. I look forward to reading it. I'm going to make sure that the, I actually pulled up the link in Amazon and I'm going to make sure that gets into the show notes and, and the video description. Um, but, but thanks so much for being here. Why don't you let people know how they can reach out to you if they want to connect? 
Sure. Thanks, Mike. I'm on LinkedIn. My name is Zach, Z-A-C-H, Ratner, R-A-T-T-N-E-R. Um, and if that's too many words, you can just search Yembo, Y-E-M-B-O, and uh, you can find me that way too. Both of them are on LinkedIn. Cool. Well, I really appreciate you being here. Um, I'm going to make sure that we connect as well, um, if we're not already. Um, this has been an interesting conversation because I think, first of all, I really like they used the, the book to kind of tell the story of what your approach was to grow. Um, and I think, and it's also really encouraging to hear that people are reading the book and then reaching out to you saying, Hey, I tried this. I tried that because so many people are stuck in their ways. Um, that it's nice to hear people thinking outside the box and being willing to at least try something. One of the things that you said during the interview that really strikes me is giving an employee the ability to try out a role for a while. Um, mm -hmm. I think a lot more companies should do something like that because let's be real. Someone who started with you day one, who's still here today is going to have so much institutional knowledge about exactly. why you went in a direction and making decisions might be a little bit easier for them than if you brought someone top notch from the outside who knows nothing about that. I, I really think that's a, a big feather in your cap for doing that. A lot of companies, they say to themselves, well, this guy there, he's not quite strong enough. Maybe he hasn't had a chance to spread his wings. You know, you just. Exactly. Get, yeah. Sometimes there are people for sure. I mean, I know when I was, when I was working as a CTO, I had people on my staff that would, their performance would kind of fit to the job role, but they were capable of so much more. And when you gave them more responsibility, they, they flourished. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, and I think one of the number one things that keeps people at work and coming back is enjoying what they're doing. And if you keep them stuck in one role forever, after a while, they're, they're tired of it and they get bored. So I really do appreciate the, everything you've told us today. Uh, thanks so much again for being on here. Yeah, thank you so much, Mike, for having me. Have a good rest of your day. All right. So thanks for being on, for tuning into uh, Gaining the Technology Leadership Edge. We hope you've had a great time with us learning everything you need to know to stay ahead of the technology curve. Remember, be curious. Um, be updated on all the latest trends and show them who's the boss. Until next time, um, we'll be back with plenty more tips and tricks. Keep you at the top of your game. <laughs>